chapter 2. It's going to take us a little while to get to Acts chapter 2 today. We're going to look at a couple of other texts before we get there, but that's where we're going to spend uh, the vast majority of our time in the Bible today. As we introduce a new sermon series, we're going to talk about how membership matters and leadership matters here at at First Baptist Church. And as Joe indicated early in the service today, it's going to be different uh, than what we're used to. And one of the things that's going to be different is I'm not going to read the text right up front uh, and then pray and and work through it. I'm going to pray first. So uh, I know that we just finished praying, um, but we can never spend too much time in prayer, right? And so specifically, uh, I want you to join with me in praying that God will guide us during our time uh, here in this moment. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so thankful, so thankful that you have saved us by your grace through faith in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who died for our sins and rose again. And we are thankful for the opportunity to testify to that truth in song just now. We're thankful that you have gathered us together as a family. You've gathered us together as a body, as your bride, as your church here at First Baptist in Harrisburg. So over these next few weeks, we ask that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit to think carefully, to think biblically about what it looks like to live our lives together as a church in a way that honors you. We ask that you would encourage us where we need encouragement, encourage us, affirm us where things are good, and right and true, and we pray that you would correct us where we have strayed, and that in all of it you would conform us to the good design that you have laid out for us in your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so like I said earlier, today is introduction day to a new series of messages that are going to occupy our time and attention on Sunday mornings for the next six to eight weeks. So I want to start by telling you what we're going to do. We are going first to take a break from our normal diet of exposition. We here at First Baptist Church of Harrisburg are committed to a steady diet of expositional preaching. We typically take a book of the Bible and study just verse by verse from the beginning to the end. Sometimes this takes months. Sometimes it takes years of weekly study. Our most recent study of the book of Revelation occupied our time and attention for a little over a year. Many of you know that. Many of you also know that that was significantly less time than I expected when we were going into that study. We were prepared uh, for that to occupy about three years uh, of preaching here at First Baptist. I'd say all that to say exposition is our bread and butter here. And we do that because we believe that when we study God's word with discipline and with consistency, that he will bring us just what we need when we need it in a way that we could never anticipate as your pastoral staff that he will meet needs that we are completely unaware of just by the faithful study of his word. We have seen it over and over and over. God brings us exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. That's part of why we're committed to expositional preaching. We also are committed to expositional preaching because we believe what the Bible says about itself. We believe the Bible speaks with accuracy when it speaks about itself. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 16 says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Part of why we preach the way we do is we're convinced that these sacred writings 
have wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. We believe that all scripture, all of it is breathed out of the mouth of God and profitable to us. This is part of why we say we're going to stand up and we're going to preach the Bible. We are also committed to expositional preaching because we're convinced that it is best to start with a text and let the point of the sermon come out of the text rather than start with a point and then go to a text to try to make that text support that point. Basically, we would rather rest our weight on the scriptures rather than the preacher. We would much rather rest our weight on the scriptures, God's infallible, inerrant, authoritative word than the ideas of a preacher. So that's why we're committed. We believe that the healthiest diet for the church is a steady diet of expositional preaching, and you get that. But having said all that, we're not opposed to the occasional topical snack. And that's what this is going to be over the next few weeks, an occasional topical snack. Just because it isn't our normal diet over the next few weeks doesn't mean that what we're about to do is unhealthy in any way, nor does it mean that what we're about to do is unimportant. In fact, I'm totally convinced that the things we are going to consider over the next few weeks are crucial, absolutely crucial to the health of First Baptist Church. And I am convinced that the things that we are going to talk about are extremely important. And so I want to encourage you, I want to exhort you even to be here over the next six to eight weeks, to be here and be engaged. Commit to that now. Commit to say, this is going to be important for the life of the church. And so over the next six to, six to eight weeks, I'm not going to miss unless I absolutely have to. And I'm going to also invite you to pay close attention. Like take good notes. This is going to be a little bit different approach than we're used to. And so note taking will be a little bit different, arguably a little bit easier to take notes in messages like this. And so take good notes. You won't need a whole notebook probably like you did for Revelation. You don't have to go to Walmart and buy a brand new uh, composition book like Joe does. Um, maybe just a few sheets of paper is, is all you need for this. But take good notes. I would encourage you to read extra material. There are a lot of articles that I will be posting on social media sites or can tell you about uh, just face-to-face. -face. I'd be glad to share those with you. Be in New Life University classes on Sunday nights. This is the kind of stuff that we're talking about in those classes right now. That's great supplemental information. Over the next six to eight weeks, we're going to be considering important principles from the scriptures regarding church membership and church leadership. With leadership in particular, we're going to look closely at the functions of the two offices of the church. There are two offices in the church, namely pastors which are sometimes called elders. We're going to talk about that, 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 that those two words are interchangeable. There's another word that fits in there too, overseers. Pastors, elders, overseers, same thing. We're going to talk about what the Bible says about that office, and we're going to talk about what the Bible says about deacons. How are those two offices different from one another? Um, who's supposed to be an elder, and what's an elder supposed to do, and who's supposed to be a deacon, and what's a deacon supposed to do? We're going to talk about those things over the next several weeks. So that's what we're going to do. Let me talk to you a little bit about why we're going to do that. One of the reasons why we're going to do this is because a while back, First Baptist Church gave me some time away, some time away from the normal duties of being the pastor here at First Baptist. This was after a super difficult season of ministry. Uh, it was also happened to be right around the time of my 10th anniversary as your pastor here. And during that seven-week sabbatical in the summer of 2019, I did a lot of things. Did some adventuring with Laura and the kids. Some of those memories got to relive this week with some new friends. Uh, did some resting, did some recovering, which was needed. And I did some reflecting also, considering my approach to ministry in general and thinking through some 
specific issues at First Baptist that needed to be adjusted. There have been a few areas of the life at First Baptist that have needed attention for quite some time. And those are the areas that we're going to talk about over the next six to eight weeks. The area of church membership first has been a constant concern for me here, especially this time of year, especially this time of year, every year, church membership is an issue because in the fall, there are a lot of denominational meetings and at those meetings, various reports and spreadsheets are shared. Often there are conversations with other pastors and both of those things, the spreadsheets and the conversations with pastors oftentimes center around the numbers, specifically the number of members of the church and the number of attenders at the church. And for a long time, there has been a very troubling disparity between the number of members at First Baptist Church and the number of people who actually attend even on a semi-regular basis. I'm gonna share much more and much more specifically later in this series. But for today, let me tell you that we have around three to four times as many members of First Baptist Church as the number of people who actually attend occasionally. I think it's safe to say that well over half the members of First Baptist Church never attend a gathering here and haven't for quite some time. That's a problem. All of this is a problem. It's troubling on a number of levels, not the least of which is a personal concern for how I am to faithfully discharge my duty before the Lord that's described in 1 Peter chapter 5. Look at this text. It says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you. Again, we, 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 can, we can say pastor there, the same, same idea, same office. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Verse 2 says, shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. I think that text raises a couple of questions that are related. Number one, who is this flock? Exactly, who are the sheep that I am to shepherd? Who are the sheep that I am accountable to God to shepherd? Maybe to say it another way is, who are the ones who are allotted to my charge? Right there in the text. Who are the ones who are allotted to our charge as the pastors of First Baptist? Who is the flock and who are the ones who are allotted to our charge? Those are important questions and hard to answer right now. One of the ways this comes up in day-to-day -day life is in the obituary column. It happens way too often that someone dies and it is listed that they are a member of First Baptist Church of Harrisburg. And while that's usually technically true, it is often that that person hasn't been involved in any meaningful way in decades. And that's not usually because they are unable to physically be here. I'm not talking in any of this, and I'll clarify this more as we go on, I'm not talking in any of this about shut-ins or folks who are unable to attend but wish they could. <laughs> like would give anything to be able to be here gathered together with us. I'm talking about folks who could. Like there is nothing stopping them from being part of the life of this church. But every Sunday, every Wednesday, they choose to do something else. 
they choose not to be part of this body. There's a conversation that happens occasionally that goes this way. Hey, did you know that so-and-so is a member of First Baptist Church? My reply has started to be, yeah, I know they're a member of First Baptist Church. Evidently, they don't know they're a member of First Baptist Church. Or else they would show up occasionally. We have some work to do when it comes to church membership. Church membership needs some attention. Here's what we need to do. We need to reclaim meaningful church membership. Meaningful church membership. So that to say that one is a member of First Baptist Church of Harrisburg, it means something. It means more than just you are part of well over a thousand people who have their name on a list at First Baptist Church. But that you are part of the life of the body here. You are a member of the family. We need to reclaim meaningful church membership. So we're going to talk a lot about that. Number two, I mentioned my duty described in 1 Peter chapter 5. That leads to a second area of concern, namely pastoral leadership. We're going to talk a lot about pastoral leadership. One of the glaring weaknesses that our trouble in 2018, the crisis that we faced in 2018, one of the weaknesses that that revealed was how problematic it can be when there is only one recognized elder in the church, essentially. To, to say it another way, when the structure of leadership is a pyramid with a single person at the top, it's really not good for that guy at the top. Nor is it good for everyone else in the pyramid. And it is certainly not biblical for the leadership of the church to be structured that way. So we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the biblical model of a plurality of elders. A plurality of elders. Do you know what that means? More than one. <laughs> it means a group of elders and how we can move in that direction. The vision here is a pastoral team. An authoritative we who speaks with one voice and leads the way pastorally, though it is a group. I'll give you a spoiler alert. We already have that here at First Baptist on some level. With myself and Pastor Joe and Pastor Dylan. And we have been operating in this fashion more and more since our crisis in 2018. One of the hard lessons we learned in that have caused us to operate differently amongst the three of us. And especially during this most recent crisis of COVID. I really think that this season has been a proving ground for the benefits of this model of a plurality of elders leading the way. And that we should embrace it, officially embrace this concept and expand it. I'm going to say much more about this in the weeks ahead. As this area in particular is probably the least familiar of the three that we're going to cover. When we talk about a plurality of elders leading the way, I'm not, I'm not going to argue against congregationalism. We're not going to become Presbyterians. It's not the idea. But rather, what does congregationalism look like when it's led by a plurality of elders? So stay tuned for that. I hope that you're super curious about that. I hope that you're like, oh, I haven't heard much about this before. This is not the way we've done it before. Well, actually, it is the way you've done it before. It was just 100 so years ago. Um, we haven't done it this way in a while. Um, but we're going to make an argument from the Bible that that's the way it should be done. So stay tuned for that. And finally, the last thing, we need some more deacons. We need some new deacons. We have had several faithful men retire over the last few years from their service in the role of deacon. 
We're extremely grateful for each one of those guys and glad to see so many of them continue to be actively engaged in ministry here. But we need to bring on some new guys in the service ministry of the church. And as we do that, it's a perfect time for us to consider yet again who should be a deacon and what deacons should do. Of the three areas that we're going to explore over the next six to eight weeks, this might be the easiest one. But it is certainly not the least important. We need to be careful to think this through biblically and then act faithfully. Now, after returning from sabbatical and wrestling with this stuff, I began talking about these things with the staff for a while with the staff. And then we began to talk about those things with the deacons, paving the way to push in this direction with you. We did a singular Life University class that lasted a long time. We all gathered in here. We read through a book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. We were making the way to do this. We even got so far as to taking nominations for new deacons. The ball was rolling this direction. We, were, we had some momentum going this direction, and then COVID hit. So we hit the brakes. And I know COVID isn't over, but I'm confident that we can't wait forever to address these important issues. I don't know what the metric would be to trip the trigger to say, okay, now is the time, other than to say, now's the time. So we're going to talk about these for the next few weeks. Those are some specific things, some specific reasons why we're going to talk about these three issues over the next few weeks. But beyond those specific things, there's a need for just constant growth within the church. There's a need for us just to constantly consider the way we do things and why we do them. Uh, It is good for us to step back and not just say, what do we do, but why do we do that? And if the only answer we have to why we do it is because we've always done it that way, uh, we probably need more than that, right? And so there is this constant need for reformation within the church, so to speak. So you hear me sometimes refer to the battle cries of the reformation, of the Protestant reformation. There were five statements that kind of encapsulate the principles that were fought for and died for uh, in the Protestant reformation. Uh, They all start with some form of the word sola. I think we have a slide that has them listed. Yeah, so in, in Latin, it is Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, and soli deo gloria. You hear me say them by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You don't hear me as often say the phrase according to the scriptures alone, because that's just kind of woven into everything we do around here, and for the glory of God alone. Those were the five battle cries of the Protestant Reformation, but there was another statement that was often thrown around that applies to what we're talking about today that comes right out of the Protestant Reformation. They would say also in Latin, Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformata. That basically means the church reformed, always reforming. In other words, the reformers who fought and died for these biblical principles recognized that what they were participating in was not a one-time action. It was a call to a constant evaluation and conformity to the word of God as the authority in the church, in all matters of faith and practice. And so it wasn't like, oh, well, we got the, we got the Reformation done, and now we're done. We'll just go on like that forever and ever. But constantly saying, is what we are doing biblical? Is what we are doing the way God has designed it to be done? And so I want us to have a bit of that spirit of a church reformed and always reforming. Uh, That's kind of like our Christian life, right? Like I'm a a person saved. I'm a person transformed, always transforming. 
I'm a person redeemed, always being redeemed. I'm a person conformed to the image of Christ, always being conformed to the image of Christ. And it works the same way within the church. And so those are some specific reasons why we're going to do this study and some ah, general reason why we're going to do this study. That's what we're going to do, and that's why we're going to do it. And since today is like basic introduction to all of this, I thought it would be good for us to spend some time thinking not through the specifics of leadership and membership, but rather thinking generally about what is a church. What is the church? What is the true church? What does it take for a group to be a church? So I'll walk through some definitions with you from a couple of different sources. One of those sources first is the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. This is the doctrinal statement of the Southern Baptist Convention most recently adopted. It also is the doctrinal statement of First Baptist Church Harrisburg. So when we say, what do we believe? We have a document that we can point to and say, this is, this is generally what we believe about a number of issues. And there is a section about the church. There's a section about God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, about conversion, about evangelism, about all kinds of things. And there is a section about the church. What is the church? This is the definition. If you remember the church, this is, this is what we believe about, for, about the church. A New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing the two ordinances of Christ, governed by his laws, exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by his word, and seeking to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. Each congregation operates under the lordship of Christ through democratic processes. In such a congregational uh, congregation, each member is responsible and accountable to Christ as Lord. Its scriptural officers are pastors and deacons. While both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture. Now that's the local church stuff, which is where we're going to spend most of our time thinking and talking. But the Bible also speaks about a global church, which is what the next section of the Baptist Faith and Message covers when it says... The New Testament speaks also of the church as the body of Christ, which includes all of the redeemed of all the ages, believers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So there's an element where the Bible speaks about the church in its local form, like with a little c, like First Baptist Church of Harrisburg, or like Dorsville Baptist Church, or any other example of a local congregation, a local body. But the Bible also speaks about the universal church. The church maybe you could say with a capital C. That is, all believers from all time. But most of the time, when the New Testament is referring to the church, it's referring to that local form of the church, that local version of the church, like this place. Does that make some sense? So that's what our doctrinal statement says about it. That's long, it's clunky, but it is worth your time to look through the Baptist Faith and Message, that section in particular, because one of the cool things about the Baptist Faith and Message is underneath that statement will be a whole list of cross-reference scriptures. A whole list of Bible passages where those concepts come from. Because the very first, the very first section in the Baptist Faith and Message is about the Scriptures. The Scriptures as the authority for the things that we know about God. So, that's how the Baptist Faith and Message says it. John Piper has a shorter definition, which is a shocker. If you know John Piper, it's, it's interesting. He says this, I would define a local church like this. 
A local church is a group of baptized believers who meet regularly to worship God through Jesus Christ, to be exhorted from the word of God, and to celebrate the Lord's Supper under the guidance of duly appointed leaders. One of the reasons why I'm going to share with you three different definitions from three different sources and then go to Acts chapter 2 is to show you where those things line up. Where, where they overlap and the things that they have in common, which are the essence of what it means to be a true church. Piper here points out seven things in this, in this definition. The one that's most interesting to me is what he says about regular assembling. Regular, regularly assembling. He says in another place, a group of people who only come together, say once a year, could not rightly be called a local church. Because there are essential activities of the church which lose their meaning when not done corporately. Therefore, Hebrews 10.25 commands us not to neglect the assembling together, as is the habit of some. So that's what Piper says. Another scholar named Jonathan Lehman, who is part of Nine Marks Ministries, he says this. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. A group of Christians regularly gathering, exercising oversight and affirmation of each other, preaching and the ordinances, help with all of this. So with all of that in mind, all three of those definitions and the, and the various parts of it, I want to spend the rest of our time together in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37. Not because that's the only text about the local church. It's certainly not. In fact, we're not even going to squeeze all the juice out of even this text today. But what you're going to see in this text is the birth of the local church. And many of the traits are there right from the very beginning. Like right from the very beginning when the church is born, it gets involved in certain things. It is comprised a certain way. So let's read it together. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37. It says, Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the prophets and the, uh, through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. I want you to notice uh, six things from that text about the church. Six things to notice from the very birth 
of the local church. Number one, they are saved people. We're talking about a group of Christians. Peter has just preached the gospel to them. In fact, uh, read, read verse 36. This is right before I started in verse 37. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Like he's, he's getting at the heart of the gospel and these guys say, what must we do? Pierced to the heart, what must we do? These are people who are saved. Peter has just preached the gospel and these folks have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They have heard the word of God proclaimed and they have repented of their sins, and believed in Jesus Christ. Who's ready to do that today? Like, seriously, who's ready to do that today? To hear about the holiness of God, to hear about the sinfulness of man, to hear about the sacrifice of Christ, that Jesus died in the place of sinners, took our sins upon himself, and suffered the wrath that we deserve. He died for our sins on the cross, and he buried him, and on the third day, he rose from the grave. This is really good news, especially when it goes on to say that we receive salvation and forgiveness of sins and eternal life as a free gift, a free gift of grace. We receive it by faith, by believing, not by doing and performing, but by trusting in Christ and what he has done. So I invite you today to repent of your sins. Like Be like this, pierced to the heart, what must I do? Repent and believe, that's what must you do. And be saved. That's the first thing you will notice about this group that is called the church. They are saved people. So if you are not a Christian, you are not part of this church. You're not part of the body of Christ. We're, we're glad for you to be here and observe and hear and witness these things. But the first step to being part of the church is being a Christian. These people are saved. That's number one. Number two. They are baptized. It's a group of people who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, and they are baptized. And this baptism identifies them publicly with Jesus and with his people. It's mentioned twice in the text. In verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized. And then in verse 41, it says, So then, those who had received the word, right? That, that is another way to talk about believing. You receive the word. That's what it looks like to believe. They were baptized. This baptism is the public identification with Jesus and with his people. And it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. People in the first century didn't believe in Jesus and get baptized and then walk away. No, no, no. By believing in Jesus and getting baptized, they had already walked away. They had walked away from an old life. They had walked away from an old community, and they have now identified with a new community, one that they cannot walk away from because there's nowhere else to go. And friends, that's the way it is for our brothers and sisters around the world right now. Like we, we treat baptism relatively lightly around here compared to them because in Central Asia and North Africa and South Asia and other places in the world, if you say, I believe in Jesus and I'm going to follow him in baptism, publicly identifying with him in baptism, you are kicked out of your family. You're ostracized from the community. There's no turning back. We used to sing about that. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. 
We sing about that like it's a lighthearted thing, but for believers in the first century, for believers in other parts of the world today, there is no place to turn back to. They were baptized. That's huge. It's a huge step in identifying with the Lord and his people. So that's the first thing. They are saved. These are Christians. They are baptized. Number three, they're gathered together. Look at it in verse... uh, I've got too many colors on my page here. Look at verse 43. Verse 43 says, Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles. Verse 45 says, And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all. It says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. They had all things in common. They were together, sold their possessions. They were from all over. We know that the context of Pentecost is that people traveled from all over the known world to come to Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost. And when they came to Jerusalem, these people from all the regions around, they believed in Jesus, they were baptized, and they didn't go immediately back home. They immediately gathered with other people who believed in Jesus and were baptized. And they weren't instructed to do this. One of the coolest things is they weren't instructed to do this. It just came naturally. After all, who else would they spend their days with than fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ? They were saved. They were baptized. They were gathered together. One thing that's overlooked oftentimes in the birth of the church is that they were counted. They were counted. Look what it says at the end of verse 41. So then those who had received the word were baptized, and that day there were added, added about 3,000 souls. Now, I know the word about there may seem like, oh, this is just general, but I want you to notice that there was a number that was added to a number. Like somebody is keeping up with who's in. You can see it again in verse um, 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. My point here is that there was an identified number. And you can see that in the gospel accounts. You can see that uh, earlier in Acts. Like there's a specific number of people in the upper room. There's a specific number of people at Pentecost. There's a specific number of people following after Jesus. And that specific number is being added to here by a specific number. In other words, somebody is keeping records of who belongs to the church. So, so there are a lot of people today who say, ah, we don't, need, we don't need to keep up with formal membership. There's no biblical precedent for a formal list of members. Well, where did the number come from? How did they know who was in and who was out? How did they know that there was a number added to a number unless somebody was keeping track of the numbers? They were counted. And you're going to see that. They were gathered and they were counted. Third, uh, whatever we're on. That's not third. That's fifth. They were led. They were led specifically by the word of God through the apostles. We see that from the very beginning in verse 37. It says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles. They heard the word of God through Peter and the other apostles. And so when they have a question, where do they go? They go to the leaders of this band who are teaching the word of God to them, to Peter and the apostles. We see it also in verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. They were led by the word of God through the apostles. There's an authority in place in the early church. 
And then finally, they're growing. They're saved, they're baptized, they're gathered, they're counted, they're led, and they are growing. And what I see when I read through this text is that they're not just growing numerically, although that is clear, right? 3,000 are added in that one day to their number. And then later, they're growing day by day according to the number of those who are being saved. They are certainly growing numerically, but it is clear they are also growing in their discipleship and their practice. It says in verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Like this is expanding and it's growing, the things that are happening. Verse 45 says, they began selling their property and possessions, sharing them with all as anyone might have a need. They're growing in their maturity. They're growing in their love for one another. They're growing in discipleship. Not just, not just growing by getting people in the door and in the dunk tank. They're growing in their life together. I think those are things that mark the church, the true church. They're saved, they're baptized, they're gathered, they're counted, they're led, and they're growing. If that's what the, if that's what the true church looks like, First Baptist is a true church. We are a church. There are a lot of good things going on here. Even in this current difficult season, there are a lot of good things going on here. But friends, we don't want to just be a true church. We don't want to just pass the test and say, yep, that's a church. By the skin of their teeth, that's a church. It's not a cult. It's a church. We don't want to just cross that bar. We want to be a healthy church. We want to be a healthy church, one that is constantly getting healthier as the years go by. So let's not just consider today what's a true church. Let's consider what's a healthy church. The International Mission Board is extremely concerned about this as they deal with new churches that are being birthed all over the world in various contexts. And so they, they have created this kind of qualitative grid to say how healthy is that group? All right, we've got a church here. We've got a church here in Sri Lanka. We've got a church here in Central Asia. We've got a new church here. It's, it's a true church. It's got the basics. But how healthy is it? And is it growing in health? And they have identified five, I mean, 12 characteristics of a healthy church. 12 characteristics of a healthy church. A healthy church has evangelism and discipleship and membership and leadership and teaching and preaching and the observation of the ordinances. A healthy church is vibrant in worship and prayer and fellowship and accountability and discipline in giving, and in mission. So I think it's wise for us to say, all right, if we've passed the true church test, we are a true church, we need to start thinking, are we a healthy church? How are we, how are we doing in these areas of evangelism, discipleship, membership, leadership, teaching and preaching ordinances, worship, prayer, fellowship, accountability? Like that, that's what SBC's IMB has said, these are the things that we need to look for to, to see if these new churches are healthy. When I was in college, I read a book by Mark Dever, who's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. is an SBC church that is healthy and faithful. And this book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, not the nine marks of a healthy church, but just nine marks of a healthy church was super influential on my life uh, as a 20-year-old, 21-year-old studying for ministry. Dever in that book identifies nine marks of a healthy church. Expositional preaching, biblical theology, the gospel, a biblical understanding of conversion, 
a biblical understanding of evangelism, a biblical understanding of church membership, biblical church discipline, a concern for discipleship and growth, and biblical church leadership. And this ministry, Nine Marks, is a, is a great resource for matters uh, along these lines. A wealth of information, articles and books and all kinds of good information. Now, as I think specifically through nine marks of a healthy church, because I'm more familiar with that than I am the IMB's 12 marks, man, I see some things that I think First Baptist gets an add-a-girl in. I think there are some areas here where we have a real healthy report. But there are others where there's a real weakness and a real need, a desperate need for growth, particularly in the area of membership and leadership. We need to recover, and this is where we're going to go, we need to recover meaningful membership. We need to push toward plural eldership. And we need to, we need to demand vibrant deaconship. I don't know if you can add ship to deacon, but it fits with, with the way we're talking. Meaningful membership, plural eldership, vibrant deaconship. That's what we're going to be talking about for the next six to eight weeks. So here's the application today. I want you to pray. I want you to commit to pray for the next six to eight weeks. Join us as your pastoral staff in prayer for guidance. Ask the Lord for guidance that we would understand what the Bible says and be glad to do what the Bible says. Be bold and courageous to do what the Bible says. So pray. Take it before the Lord and say, Lord, we need wisdom here. You've laid out a design for us as a gathering, as a body. Show us what that looks like and make us faithful to it. So let's commit to pray. Number two, I invite you to discuss this amongst yourselves. We're going to talk about things that you haven't heard before. We're going to suggest things that we haven't done before. And we're not looking to dictate this from the top. We're looking to discuss this together. I am wide open for conversation about all of this. I am wide open even for healthy argument. I'm not interested in unhealthy argument. Right? If you just want to gripe and complain, you can call Joe. Pastor Joe. You can call Pastor Joe <laughs> to gripe and complain. If you want to debate, I think we're all up for that and be glad to do it. So let's discuss this. Let's talk about it in Sunday school. One of the best places to talk about these things right now is in New Life University on Sunday nights. In very small groups where you're walking through some material about these very things. Talk about it. Discuss it. Debate it. Ask questions. That's what we want to do. Pray. Discuss. Third, act. We're going to need to act on these things. Like As we talk about them, we're not, we're not just talking about theory. We're not talking conceptually here. We want to act, move in faithfulness to God. And you have a responsibility in that. So be ready to do that as the weeks unfold. I told some of our, our other leaders in, in deacons meeting the other night, like we feel like we need to move forward with this despite COVID, but depending on how COVID goes, we, we might not push for immediate action about these things. We're not going to rush something, force something but we can't just sit still on these matters any longer, okay? Those are three things particular to what we're talking about today. There's one other thing that I want to start adding into our response time on a regular basis. 
And it's this question that you've heard me talk about before that rattles around in my head. It rattles around in my heart a lot. The question is, who's next? Who's next? And on my dark days, my pessimistic days, it's like, who's the next one to ruin their life? Who's the next one to make a shipwreck of the faith? Who's the next one to implode? Don't, Don't be that next one. I don't want that for any of you. I don't want any of you to fall apart. I don't want any of you to walk away. I don't want any of you to give up. I don't want any of you to wander away from the faith. Who's next in the worst way? I hope it's not you. If you feel like you're drifting, man, get a hold of somebody. Put your anchor down in the word so that you don't drift away. But on my good days, when the sun is shining and I'm optimistic about life, and the spirit is moving in my heart. Who's next is like, who's the next one to get saved? Who, who's the next one that's going to come down here and stand up here beside me and say, I believe in Jesus. I was dead and now I'm alive. I was blind and now I can see. Who, who's the next one to say, I'm ready to get baptized and follow after Jesus. If it costs you your life, yeah, even if it costs me my life. Who's the next one for that? Is it you? Who's next? Who's next to be called out to ministry. Who's the next one to say, man, I had a plan. I had a plan to be a doctor. I had a plan to be a lawyer. I had a plan to be a coal miner, but the Lord has called me to serve him with my life. And I'm ready to do it. I'm ready to change course and go the way the Lord is describing, prescribing, demanding, and calling. Who's next to say, I'm gonna be a pastor. It's not always just young people. Who's, next, who's hearing God call them that way? Who's the next one to hear that call? Maybe the one that gets me as excited about who's next to become a Christian is who's next to leave this place and go to the darkness. Who's the next one to leave life in Southern Illinois and plant themselves amongst the unreached and unengaged of the world? Who's the next one to go to the ends of the earth and be the tip of the spear taking the gospel to the nations? Who's next to say, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also? Who's the next one to do that? First Baptist Church, I, I want us to be a group of people that when someone says that, we say, go get them. We're not this like, oh, that's crazy. No one does that. You want to move where? Don't respond that way. Say yes and amen and we are with you and we will hold that rope. You go down in that pit and we will hold the rope here. We'll support you every step of the way. We do a good job with that. The people who are already in the pit. Who's next? Who's next? There are billions of people, billions of people on the planet right now who will be born and live and die and never hear the good news that Jesus can save them. And they will enter eternity without Christ and know only condemnation because of their sinfulness. Who's next to change that? Who's next to be a little bit of light in a very dark place? Maybe it's you. Maybe it's me. Let's stand together and pray. Father, help us as we enter this season thinking about your design for the local church, our role in it as members, as leaders. We want to be informed biblically. We want to be a true church. 
that doesn't just barely pass the tests of being a church, but we want to be a healthy church that is vibrant and active and pleasing unto you, faithful to your word. God, give us guidance. Give us love for one another as we talk through these things together. Give us one mind as we move ahead and give us courage to act. Forgive us when we live in a land of theory and call us to action. And God, I pray for that next one, next one to be saved, the next one to be called to ministry, that next one to be sent out to the nations. God, give them courage to follow where you're leading. Courage to never look back. For the sake of your name, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.